right. Would you bow with me in prayer as we begin? Father, thank you that you have cleansed and filled us with your Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would um, help us to be controlled even more by him today so that you can use us uh, with full surrendered hearts to do the work that you have called us to do. Lord, we have much to do here in this place among these people, and we um, cannot do it by sitting on our hands or being lazy. We need to be complicit with the work of the Spirit, and we pray that you'd help us to understand more clearly what our responsibility is and how we can engage in that responsibility tonight as we look into your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 14 is the focus of our attention this evening. In chapter 12, Paul showed, showed how the Holy Spirit uses the diversity of the spiritual gifts in order to create unity in the body of Christ, kind of a, a paradoxical kind of idea, but, but he actually uses the diversity of us, particularly the, the diversity of the gifts that he gives to us, in order to create unity so that Christ will be exalted through mutual edification. Um, no body part is left behind. We are the body of Christ. We are a local expression of Christ's body. All members of the body of Christ are critical to its function. And so that means that no one part of the body should be proud or arrogant or have an air of superiority because it's better than some of the other parts. The big problem in Corinth was that they were using their spiritual gifts for their own benefit. When I say there, I mean each person individually is using their individual gifts for their own individual benefit and looking condescendingly uh, condescendingly on others for not possessing these great showy gifts that they possessed. And this is why Paul wrote this scathing rebuke of chapter 13, which we call the love chapter, but but it's really a, a, a rebuke that Paul gives to them, saying, you know, that a person could have the greatest of the spiritual gifts they could be a great philanthropist, a humanitarian, and even a person who is willing to sacrifice his own life and still do it without love. And as a result, his actions mean nothing. And that is Corinth. They are the opposite of love. They are arrogant, impatient, unkind, jealous, rude, selfish, easily angered. You go all the way through the list. They're the opposite of what Paul calls love in chapter 13. So effectively... In the context, what he's saying in chapter 13 is love is not like you. This is not you. And if the Corinthians got the point that Paul was making, then the next question is, then what does Christian love look like? With relationship to my spiritual gift, what does Christian love look like? And the answer is in chapter 14. And it is this, that love is expressed in our proper use of spiritual gifts for the spiritual well-being of our fellow believers or spiritual well-being of others. Love is expressed in our proper use of spiritual gifts for the spiritual well-being of others. So let me read our text for us tonight, beginning in verse number one. This is the word of God. Pursue love. Yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies 
speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in tongues edifies himself. The one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, I wish you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you. Unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you. Since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Therefore, let one who speaks in, t in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you're saying. For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind, so that I may instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. So, Paul here in chapters... 12 to 14 is talking about the use of spiritual gifts, how the Spirit uses them for the sake of unity in the church, and then how love must be the fuel behind the engine of all of our spiritual gifts in chapter 13. And now he explains um, how love is expressed in our use of the spiritual gifts. It is expressed in, in its purpose. That is, it, it must have a proper spiritual God-led purpose, that is, edification of the church. So, he makes four main points in our section of Scripture. First, failure to edify is failure to love. In verse 1, failure to edify is failure to love. He says, pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. So, Paul's rebuked the congregation with regard to their lack of love in chapter 13, but he doesn't want them... Uh, doesn't want their zealousness uh, to be unused by the Spirit. In other words, just because you have a showy gift doesn't mean that, that you, know, you, you shouldn't use it. So maybe they're thinking, okay, we like the showy gifts, especially the tongue speaking. That's great because it kind of proves how spiritual we are. And Paul says, no, you need to do that in love. Because even if you do that, without love, it's nothing. It's of no value. It's like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, right? So, so now the other extreme is, well, then I guess we don't use our showy gift. I guess we just try to do whatever we can in love. And Paul's like, no, still use your gifts. Desire to, to use those gifts. You need to be zealous for what is spiritual. But especially something that actually benefits the church, not 
We're going to talk about this a lot, but not tongue speaking without interpretation. But rather, uh, something that's going to benefit the body. This prophecy that he's saying would be a good thing to desire is this instantaneous direct revelation, this speech from God that God somehow during that time gave some people the gift through the Holy Spirit of this direct revelation apart from the Scriptures, the ability to, to have God's mind on a topic and they would be able to speak on it. And so his point here is that whatever's done in the church must be done in love. Failure to edify is failure to love. Or positively stated, to love Christ is to love the church. To love the church is to edify the church. So, uh, let's try to connect this here to 1 John 4, 19-21. Right? How can you love God whom you have not seen if you don't love your brother whom you have seen? So, how do I love my brother whom I have seen? Well, there's lots of ways we can do that, but one of the ways we do it is by edifying them. By using our spiritual gift to help build them up in the faith. So, second point that he makes uh, is in verses 2-5. through five. In the church, edification is king. In the church, edification is king. And, and I hope you saw this as we were reading through, but let me just point these, these out to you where Paul draws out the main purpose, the main result that he desires. Look at verse 3. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. And then at the end of verse 4, he says, but one who prophesies edifies the church. So it's not just speaking in tongues, just edifies just himself. You know, just my little world, my little bubble. But it edifies the whole church. That's good. Uh, how about verse 5? At the end of the verse, greater is the one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. So everything that you do has to be have this as its grid its desire, its desired result, edification. And then verse 12. So also you, after he gives a number of illustrations, he's going to say, verse 12, so also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Verse 17. For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. And his point is, therefore, it's, it's of no value. Stop doing it. Verse 18. I thank God I speak in tongue... Uh, I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct or edify the person through my teaching is the idea there rather than speak 10,000 words in a tongue that doesn't edify. That's the point. And then next week, we'll also see verse 26. What is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble? Each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. So whatever it is, the last phrase in... And the last sentence there in verse 26 is, a, is an imperative. Let all things be done for edification. So in the church, edification is king. This is what we desire to happen in the church. That we are using our spiritual gift for the spiritual well-being of others. That we are lifting them up. That's the idea of edified. Building them up in the, the most holy faith, as Jude calls it. Here in verses 2 through 5, Paul compares speaking in tongues to prophesying, and he shows that prophecy is to be, is to be preferred because of its, its result. Here's why we like, Paul's saying, here's why I like prophecy better than speaking in tongues. Because speaking in tongues without an interpreter provides no benefit to the church. See if you can see that with me in verse 2. 
For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands. But in his spirit he speaks mystery. So he may feel good about himself. He, he may be doing something between him and God, which we'll talk about a little bit more, how this works. But it doesn't benefit the church because no one understands what's going on. Verse 4, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. But the one who prophesies edifies the church. He doesn't really do anything to advance the rest of the church. I mean, he, he feels good about himself because he's doing something spiritual, but doesn't even know what he's saying. I mean, that's the nature of this spiritual gift of tongue speaking. Now, it's different from what happened in Acts 2. In Acts 2, the languages were understood by people who were from different regions. Of the, they were from different regions. They came in and they're like, wait a second, you're speaking my native language. How do you know that? But it seems like these languages, whatever the tongue's language is, is some unintelligible language that no one can understand except for one who's gifted, spiritually gifted, with the gift of interpretation. So, that means that even the worshiper himself doesn't even understand what's going on. Let me see if I can show you the verse where why I say that. Um, verse 13, Therefore let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. And then Paul kind of puts himself in, in the shoes of a tongue speaker because he actually is one. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So in other words, somehow in the tongue speaking, there's a disconnect between what's coming out of his mouth and what's going on in his mind. It's actually unfruitful in his mind. Isn't that what the text says there? He doesn't clearly understand what's going on, just words coming out. And somehow it benefits God. Somehow it may benefit himself because he's actually seeing the Spirit work through him. But it doesn't benefit anybody else and it actually doesn't, um, it, it actually doesn't give him any um, cognitive or intellectual benefit. Now, we need to be clear that there's nothing inherently wrong with speaking in tongues, at least for them in, the, in that day. Verse 5, I wish that you all spoke in tongues, Paul says. Why do you think he says that? Okay, remember what's going on in the church. There seems to be some condescension going on, right? You've got these proud people up here who have all these showy spiritual gifts of particularly the speaking in tongues. seems like he keeps pressing on that in chapter 12 over and over again, then again in chapter 13. And now again he brings it up, I'd rather speak five words in clear language than 10,000 in a tongue. So it seems like that's the main issue that's going on in Corinth. And he's saying, you, some of you have this air of superiority and you're looking down at everybody, but imagine this. Imagine everyone could speak in tongues. What happens? Nobody's looking down on anybody else. So he's like, that would be great in one sense. But in another sense, you know, we go back to chapter 12 and he says, you know, we can't all be an eye. Right, that where would the hand be, or where would the the nose or the ear be, and all all that sort of thing. So, um, so Paul's effectively taking speaking tongue speaking down from the pedestal that they put it on, but he's not saying you know it's worthless. Let's just throw it away. It is a spiritual gift after all, right? A gift from the Holy Spirit, right? So we don't want to disparage it and just say well. You know, it's a big mistake for these people to ever engage in this. And he doesn't want them to stop speaking in tongues completely as long as they do it the right way. He's going to get to that. So in contrast with speaking in tongues, 
which provides no benefit to the church when there's no interpreter. Then you have this prophecy in verse 3. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. And then the end of verse 4. But one who prophesies edifies the church. And then verse 5, prophecy. Um, greater is the one who prophesies, the second part of the verse, greater is the one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that he, he may be edifying. So in other words, the one who prophesies is just naturally going to edify because he's actually speaking clear language that both he and the hearers can understand. He's speaking in, in their language, which was the Koine Greek. It was actually valuable to the church because it was intelligible. And, and, and the reality is that tongues had value for the church but only if someone would interpret them. And if you don't have someone with the gift of, of interpretation, then, then it has no value. So failure to edify is failure to love. In the church, edification is king. And then thirdly, edification doesn't happen without clarity. So there's no such thing as nonsensical ed- edification. There's no such th- thing as osmosis edification, where it just kind of happens you know we just mumble out some heavenly language type words and people are just built up in the most holy faith it doesn't happen like that and paul illustrates that in three ways and then he gives a strong application so the first way is the illustration of an obscure visit so paul uses himself in verse six as an illustration and he says what if i came to corinth and spoke in a way that was unintelligible to you what benefit or profit would that be to you? Right? He says, but now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by something that's understandable? That's what these other things are, these other gifts. Revelation, knowledge, prophecy, or teaching. Those all are understandable and that could benefit you. But speaking in tongues, and by implication, without an interpreter, have no value for you. It's unintelligible. So there's the first illustration. The second illustration is the illustration of musical instruments. And he uses two here in verses 7 and 8. In verse 7, he shows us that the key to understanding music is clarity, a distinction of tones. So for, if you take musical instruments as an example, instruments are not musical unless they are played with distinct tones. Right? They're no value if all they do is make noise, they only have value as long as they make distinct sounds that fit together with other notes around them and do so in an organized, orderly type way, right? Imagine if we had here tonight an elementary, uh, full, uh, an elementary gr- aged group full of uh, filling up the stage and they all had different musical instruments. And they knew the basic things of how to make noise with them, but they didn't really know how to make music with them. There's no conductor. And for 20 minutes, we just sat here and listened to them make noise. I mean, it would be horrific and torturous. And that's what the Corinthians are like with their speaking in tongues. It's a lot of noise. It's like Paul calls it. It's... It's not done with love because if it was done with love, it would actually consider how the other people are responding to it. How they're benefiting from it, right? That's the first part of chapter 13. The second kind of musical instrument he 
uses is in verse 8, which is a trumpet. The key to understanding a trumpet command, which was used for military, is clarity. During that time, trumpets were used as a way to command the troops into action. So, you know, you're all in the barracks and the trumpets, there was a specific trumpet sound that would be made in order to get you up in the morning. There'd be another trumpet sound that would sound a warning. There'd be another trumpet sound that would send you out into battle. There'd be another trumpet sound that would bring you back, retreat, perhaps. But what if a bunch of indistinct, indistinguishable trumpet players were blasting their trumpets throughout the camp? What are the people supposed to do? What are the soldiers supposed to do? They're going to they're gonna be confused. It's going to result in chaos and danger, perhaps. And Paul's saying, this is what's going on in Corinth. With all you proud, arrogant, um, indistinct trumpet-playing tongue speakers, just making a lot of noise, doesn't mean anything. The third illustration is the illustration of human languages in verses 9 through 11. Human languages. Notice what is necessary for language to be understood in verse 9. So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear. How, how will it be known what is spoken? So in order for human language to be understood, there has to be clarity. All these things, that's why I say all these have to do with clarity. That is that the speech is under, actually understood by the hearer. I mean, to, to speak nonsensically with tongues is the same as, as the end of verse 9 says. What is it? For if you do it this way, you will be speaking into the air. Right? Go out into the middle of the field and shout out. Say whatever you want out there. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't accomplish anything because nobody's there to listen to you. See, language is only valuable as long as it is understood by its hearers. But if I come into the assembly and speak a language that's not understood, then it's going to be like we're a bunch of barbarians. Like, you don't understand what I'm saying because I'm this foreigner who, who doesn't speak your language and you're making noises that I don't understand. Have you ever been in a situation like that before where you were just in the middle of nobody, uh, the middle of people who all they spoke was not English, right? They spoke some other language. And they're talking around you, maybe as when you visit another country or standing in line at Walmart or Secretary of State or something. Um, I remember sitting, sitting in a church service in India thinking, I have no idea what's being said at all. And they could be talking about Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny, which... I assume they weren't, but they could have been. I didn't know. And Paul's point is, listen, if, if we're going to communicate, if there's going to be any edification building up of the saints, there has to be understanding. There has to be clarity. And so here's the application in verse 12. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. 
Paul picks up on their earnestness. Remember in chapter 12, verse 31, he says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I'll show you a more excellent way, talking about love. And then chapter 14, verse 1, pursue love, yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts. And now here in verse 12, he says, since you are zealous of, and then in the New American Standards it says, it says of spiritual gifts, but Literally, it is, since you are zealous in your spirit. That's the idea there. Since you are zealous in your spirit. What he means by that is that by means of the Holy Spirit through your spirit. So, so it means that they have zeal for their own spirit. What might that be referring to? What might my own spirit be referring to? My what? Possibly. Maybe more my, my passion, my emotions. Right, the, a person is made up of three things: mind, will, and emotions. Okay, God is a person. He is God. The Father is is mind. He has mind, will, and emotions. So does the Son, and so does the Spirit. We are persons. Animals are not persons. I hate to tell you. Okay, they don't have a mind, will, and emotions. They may have a mind of some kinds, and it may they may seem to appear to emote, but they they're not persons. Okay. Uh, but, but it seems to be that the idea is that you are zealous in your own spirits. That is, that you want to be spiritual in some way. You want your emotions to kind of show yourself as, an, as a mouthpiece of the Holy Spirit. And so in your zealousness for that, if you really want to use your emotions to be the the um, mouthpiece of the Holy Spirit, if you really want to use your spiritual gifts to accomplish the Spirit's work, here's what you must do. And what is it? At the end of verse 12. Seek to abound for the edification of the church. If you want to be so zealous about your emotions, about using your spirit for good, then you have to edify the church. I hear Christians all the time say that they're led by the Holy Spirit to do this or that, and yet many times they sound like selfish things to me. The true test of whether something is of the Spirit or not is tested by what is true and what is its purpose. And we find what is true and what the Spirit's purpose is in the Bible. In other words, Paul wants to capitalize on their zeal to be used by the Spirit, and he calls them to fall in line with what the Spirit's doing. So, if the Spirit's working in the local church to build it up, then don't stand out here and say, I want to be used by the Spirit, so here's my spiritual gift. And I'm standing over here in my little spiritual silo using my spiritual gift to show everybody else what a great Christian I am, but, but it's not benefiting, benefiting anyone. Paul says, if you want to do what's actually in keeping with the Spirit, then get in line. Be complicit with what the Spirit's doing do the same accomplish the purpose that the spirit is working to do edification of the church this is the the, the purpose of every spiritual gift turn back to chapter 12 verse 7 again we're, we're reminded of why the spiritual gifts are given chapter 12 verse 7 but to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good not talking about societal common good talking about the church and then verse 20, 
24, the middle of the verse says, but God, chapter 12, verse 24, God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to the member which lacks, so that there will be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. So the purpose of our spiritual gift is, verse 7, for the common good. Verse 25, for the mutual care of the body. And then chapter 14, it's for the edification of the church. All those things work together. So how do they do this? How is it that the Corinthians, and how do we use our zeal in a way that's in keeping with the Holy Spirit that works towards the same purpose that He has of edification for the church? How do we do this? And the answer is found in verses 13 through 19. That is that whatever we do must be understandable. Verses 13 through 19. Therefore, unintelligibility has no place in the church. Failure to edify is failure to love. In the church, edification is king. Edification doesn't happen without clarity. And therefore, unintelligibility has no place in the church. Or we can say this positively. If we're going to edify, we need to be intelligible. If you want to use your gift of tongue speaking, Paul says to the Corinthians, then pray that there's an interpreter. Or pray that you are. That's what he says in verse 13. And then in verse 14, he kind of takes on the first person tongue-speaking position because he is one. He's going to say at the end of the text, I, I speak tongues more than you all. But here he kind of takes on that pers- persona and he's kind of going through the thought process with them to help them think. So look at verse 14. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Okay, so we already touched on this, but he's saying, listen, if my spirit prays in a tongue... And the idea is that I don't understand an unintelligible tongue, even to me, then my emotions are engaged. I mean, I know it's happening. It's coming out of my mouth. I can even hear it. But my mind's not engaged. There's no fruit that it produces, right? It's unfruitful. That's what the text says. And so praying in a tongue without understanding is unfruitful. It's unprofitable. Does anyone here speak another language other than English or Pig Latin, Paul? I figured he'd answer that one, so I'll just... Jive, okay. Anyone else speak another language? Norma? Dato. What do you speak? What is it? Tagalog. Tagalog. And that's the language of... Okay. In the Philippines? Okay. All right. Oh, I don't have a prize for you or anything, but but suppose suppose that Norma got up to pray and she prayed in Tagalog. And even if she understood it, you know, she might be edified in her praying, but none of us would understand her. And so it actually would not be any profit to the church. Now that's one thing because she can actually interpret it, right? She would be able to pray in Tagalog. And then after she's finished, she could pray in English and then we could understand and be able to appreciate it. But the tongue speaker, without an interpreter, could only, could only understand his own language. He couldn't understand the, the language of the tongue. And so it's not of any value. Paul says, don't do it. If there's not an interpreter, don't even talk. It doesn't value. It doesn't provide any value. 
to the church, doesn't profit the church. Instead, verses 15 through 19, only speak in the church in a way that edifies other believers. Only speak in the church in a way that edifies other believers. So now Paul uses the example of praying and singing in order to drive his point home. He says, what is the outcome then? I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with the mind also. And the, the implication is that that's actually going to benefit the church. Because when I pray out loud in the church, I'm engaging both my emotions, my spirit, and my mind. So I'm being edified and the church is listening in on this. And they're being edified by it as well. Same thing happens when he sings. I will sing with the spirit, with my emotions, and I will sing with the mind also. And those benefit the church. But if he only engages his emotions through tongue speaking or any other gift for, for that matter, then it doesn't benefit the church. Look at verse 16. Otherwise, here's the alternative, if you're not using both your mind and your emotions, otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, okay, and again, I think that in the Spirit means in, in your emotions only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks since he doesn't know what you're saying? So the one who fills, the, it's kind of an awkward, long sentence like New American Standard can often do. But the idea here is the one who fills the place of the ungifted seems to be some kind of a seat maybe that was set up for a person who is ungifted. But this ungifted is probably not talking about an unbeliever like it's going to be in, in, in verses 23 through 25. I think he actually makes two different categories there. Um, in verse 23 he says, Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're mad or you're crazy? He's going to go on to make another point. How foolish does it look to a guest who comes into the service who doesn't understand what you're saying or to an unbeliever for that matter? I think you're crazy. And uh, again, those of you who've been to these Pentecostal churches um, probably thought exactly that, right? People are crazy. Um... So this, this I don't think, is talking about an unbeliever in verse 16. Instead, I think it's talking about someone who, who doesn't have the gift of tongues himself. He's ungifted in that way. Not that he doesn't have any spiritual gift, but he doesn't have that specific gift, or he doesn't have the interpretation of tongues. And so he's kind of left in the dark. And so someone's up there making a lot of noise, and, and he seems to be engaged in it. And this guy sitting down here is ungifted, with regard to tongues and tongues interpretation, he's going, I can't say amen to that. What does the word amen mean, by the way? So be it. Let it be true. Right? Or it is true. Let it be so. Something like that. It's actually it's a, a translation or transliteration from the Hebrew, actually. So the English gets it from the Greek. The Greek gets it from the Hebrew. It's something that they've said for a long time. It's just an affirmation of what is being said is true. And so the question is, then why can't this ungifted or anyone for that matter say amen at someone who's speaking in an unintelligible tongue? Why can't he? Nonsense. He doesn't know what is true, right? It's like, it's like if I walked into... Uh, let's, let's go to, back to India. Walk into a street corner. Someone's out there yelling a bunch of things. And it looks like he might be a street preacher, but I don't know. 
Can I say amen to him? Better be careful. Because he might be preaching heresy. Right? So, so a tongue speaker speaking up there unintelligibly, nobody interpreting. We can't say amen to that. It's nonsense. It's like we're listening to a conductorless elementary orchestra full of indistinct noises. So in verse 17 he says, For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. So you who are speaking in tongues, you may feel like you're getting great benefit from it in your little little world that you've created. But it doesn't benefit the church. It would be like a person this Sunday from our church, one of the members walking up to the platform, standing behind the pulpit, putting in their earbuds and listening to their favorite hymn. There's lots of action going on. You know, they're thinking about the words. They're maybe mouthing them a little bit. Right? And we're thinking, we can't say amen to that. I mean, what are they doing up there? How do we know that they're listening to a hymn? Maybe they're slayed in the spirit or something or they have to go to the bathroom. We're not sure, but we don't know what's going on right now. And so, you may have your little worship session going on, but it doesn't benefit the church. In verses 18 and 19, Paul takes a dig at the Corinthians who were minimizing his ability. So, you've got to think back to what's happened at the beginning of the letter. Right? They were exalting other speakers over Paul. And Paul's, I don't want to get into all that. It doesn't matter who's of who, whatever. That's ridiculous. Don't be divided over that. But one of the things they didn't like about him was that he wasn't as showy as some of these other guys who had come into town. Probably false teachers. It's all about me. Paul's like, listen to me. Okay, if I wanted to, I could speak tongues more than you all. But that's not the point. The reason I don't use my showy tongues gift is because there's no one there to interpret and it's not beneficial to the church. It doesn't edify. There's no value. So I'd rather just speak five words that people can understand and actually learn from and be edified by than if I spoke 10,000 words that only affect my emotions. All right, two two applications that are pretty obvious. Number one, everything in public worship must seek to be clear. Everything in public worship must seek to be clear, understandable, intelligible. So that every single person who comes to engage in the worship service can actually do so. That they can engage not just their external voice or their emotions, but that they can engage their minds. They actually know what's going on, that there's actually propositional truth being conveyed. So that means when we pray in church, and you pray out loud, which all of us have the opportunity to do on Wednesday nights, but others of you pray on Sunday mornings, Sunday, uh, Sunday mornings and, and then Wednesday nights, When we pray, we can't do it unintelligibly or we can't just check out and move into our memorized prayer cliche where we could just put a hand over our mouth and replace it with, you know, a recorded tape of our last prayer. That's called unengaged, unintelligible worship. 
Okay, instead, it should be an engaged prayer. I'm actually thinking about what I'm saying. I'm not just using little taglines to get to my next point. I'm actually talking with God. I mean, sometimes, and this is not you know, the main application of the text, but sometimes you know, if, we, if we talk to our spouse or you know, the per- person that we love the most, the way that we talk to God, um, I think they would be much, uh, they, they would be very well offended by the way that we talk because it's unengaged oftentimes. And, and uh, I, I say this because I struggle with this as well. I mean, I, I can find myself every day when I go to pray, often reciting the same sorts of words that I've said before. And, and so I, I need to engage my mind because sometimes I can just go right to autopilot and just go blah, 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 blah. And just, well, God will understand. He'll, he'll, he'll accept it anyway. What we're talking about, however, is more public worship. Um, certainly some application probably for our private worship, but, um, but primarily for public worship. So it actually is a word to God and it's beneficial to other people. Secondly, this includes singing. We must sing with both our mind and our emotions. We can't check out and just assume that, you know, if I just mouth the words or, you know, if I just make these audible tones, then magically God's going to be pleased and people are going to be built up. It doesn't work like that. What is pleasing to God is when we seek to use our singing voice, the words from our songs, to edify others because we're actually thinking about them. We're actually engaging with the songs. This is something I have to constantly be reminding myself and I try to remind you of as well, which is just engage your mind when you sing. Uh, don't check out because it's of no value. Ephesians 5.19 says, Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. So it's both the ex- external, speaking to one another, and the internal. So it's external, it has a benefit for edification for others, and it also has benefit for worshiping God in my heart to the Lord. And then, of course, the, the main application under this first point is that we must use our spiritual gifts with both our mind and our emotions. We need to engage both of them. And we do it for a purpose, which we're going to get to here. We need to move away from the self-centered, consumeristic mindset that asks, you know, what kind of songs or prayers or elements of worship or spiritual gifts are most pleasant to me? And move to what is most beneficial for the church? How can I use my spiritual gifts to maximally benefit the spiritual well-being of the church? And so I'm going to engage in that, and I'm going to do it with all of my person. Everything in public worship must seek to be clear. And secondly, everything in public worship must seek to be edifying. This is the main point of the text. must seek to be edifying. That means that your reputation and my reputation is not the most important thing in our worship services. Your desire for self-affirmation. This is, I think, what the Corinthians were doing, right? Like, hey, if I can show, show off this gift of, of speaking in tongues, then it affirms that the Spirit's working through me. Not the way He wants you to. Maybe His gift, but you're using it wrongly not about your self-affirmation, feeling good about yourself, how, I, how this is going to make me perceived among other people, but rather 
How does it benefit the church? Whatever gifts you have, if you use them solely for your benefit, you may feel more spiritual or may feel more affirmed, but that's a not a legitimate consideration when it comes to public worship. It's not about how you feel. It's about how it benefits the rest of the body. Does it edify other people? And the only words that should be coming out of our mouths, this is one of the other things that I constantly hear, even from Christians, you know, i got to get this off my chest. And so, in a moment of um, in a moment of anger, they, they just let it all out. I just got to. Well, that makes me feel good, but how does that edify the person that you're dumping on? Right? Does it edify the person? Because here's what Ephesians 4.29 says. The only words that should proceed out of your mouth are those that are good for edification according to the need of the moment so that our wor- words will give grace to those who hear. Don't you want to be a part of that kind of church? Don't you want to make? Uh, don't you want to edify others by, by engaging in that way and, and improving in that way? We glorify God in the church by exalting His Son through our love of one another, and our love of one another is expressed in using our spiritual gifts, not for our own personal advantage, or advancement, or glory seeking, but for the edification, lifting up of believers. Questions or comments?